Well, no doubt there have been uh, many times over the years uh, when you felt as though today would never come. Um, uh, this evening, we, as you're well aware, we come to the very end of Peter's first letter. And it made me feel quite nostalgic when I was thinking about that. Uh, so I, I looked out the first sermon that I preached in, in this series and I found that I started it by saying, I'd like to start a series on 1 Peter this morning. I don't know how often I'm going to have the opportunity to preach, so it could well be a very intermittent series spread over a long period of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> little did I know when I, when I uttered those words... <laughs> Um, it actually, uh, Chris said this morning it's been 11 years. In actual fact, we can revise that because I started it on the 21st of January 2010. So it's a bit over nine years. So it doesn't sound so bad, really, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and this is the 47th sermon in that series. But now we come to uh, the last three verses. And then we are finished. So, chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Uh, Peter said by Silvanus, A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Probably feels as though we've been working our way through a very long letter because we've been in it for so long. Uh, and yet Peter says there in verse 12, I have written briefly to you. So, so far as Peter was concerned, this was a, a short letter. In these days of emails and text messages and so on, people say, oh, Peter must be kidding. This is, this is long. But as so far as he was concerned, it was a brief letter. Um, he could have written a much longer letter uh, in much greater depth, but he was eager to send something as quickly as possible to help and encourage and instruct uh, his suffering brothers and sisters in Christ. Now you could think of these uh, last three verses really very much as a, a postscript. It's, it's like a, a PS to the letter. It consists of snappy closing remarks. Uh, so from these verses we'll see a commendation, a recapitulation, an exhortation, a couple of salutations, an instruction and a benediction. So we have a whole bunch of big words ending in shun. You can't escape them, can you? They're everywhere. <laughs> now, the bad news is that it therefore means we've got a six-point sermon. Um, the good news is they are mainly quite short points. So let's start with the commendation. We have it there in verse 12. Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Um, the NIV has with the help of Silas. Um, instead, of, instead of by Silvanus, the Greek text gives this man's name uh, as Silvanus. Um, when he's mentioned in, in Paul's letters, he's also referred to as Silvanus, but the, the NIV has opted to render his name as Silas. 
And that's probably become, that, that's the shortened version of, of Silvanus. And you find that whenever Luke mentions him in Acts, he uh, refers to him as Silas. I must admit, in some ways, I, I wish it was uh, Silas, because that's much easier to say. Um, so, Silvanus, I'm never sure whether it's Silvanus, 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 but Laura says Silvanus, so I'm following her lead. <laughs> But yes, so it's one and the same person. So just as Chris's full name is Christopher, I presume it's Christopher, um, you know, Chris and Christopher are one and the same person. Now we know that Silas or Silvanus was a a leading member of the church at Jerusalem and that he accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. Um, It isn't clear how or when he came to be associated with, with Peter, uh, but Peter makes it clear that he had written this letter by Silvanus. Uh, the NIV has with the help of it instead of by, but, but the Greek word does mean by or, or through. Now, saying that the letter was written by or through Silvanus could be understood in one of two ways. Um, it could mean that Silvanus was Peter's amanuensis, always struggle with that word, big word for saying that he acted as uh, Peter's scribe and that he he wrote the letter down on Peter's behalf. Or it could mean that he was the one who physically delivered the letter. So he was either Peter's secretary or Peter's postman. It's one one or the other. The commentators debate these two options at great length But to be honest, I don't really think it matters a great deal whether he was Peter's secretary or or, or postman. Of much greater significance is the fact that Peter commended him as a faithful brother as I regard him. Whether he was secretary or postman, either way, it was of vital importance that Peter could say that he was a faithful brother. Um, if, If he was Peter's secretary... That then it was of vital importance that he faithfully recorded Peter's inspired words. Uh, if he was Peter's postman, well, well, then his task wouldn't simply have been to deliver the letter. He wasn't going around shoving it through letterboxes. But part of his task would have been to explain it and, and interpret it and answer questions about it. So it was, again, essential that he was faithful to Peter uh, as his representative and of course faithful to the gospel so in in commending Silvanus as a faithful brother Peter was if you like authoritatively endorsing him as a a reliable witness now none of us are in the same position as as Silvanus within you know we haven't literally written down a letter on behalf of an apostle Um, We haven't literally delivered an apostolic letter. But as believers in Christ, there is a sense in that is effectively what we are called to do. We are entrusted with with reiterating and delivering a message. We are to promote and declare the gospel message, but both by, by our words and by our actions. So in terms of living for Christ, are you a faithful brother or a faithful sister? In all that you do, are you faithful to Christ 
Are you faithful to God's word? Are you faithful to the gospel? Is everything that you do consistent with what you are in Christ? Well, may it be that we are, or may it be that we can look forward to those those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That, that's what we want to be, isn't it? Faithful servants, faithful to God's word and faithful to, to the message. Having mentioned uh, the brief letter that the faithful Sylvanus had either written or delivered uh, on, Paul, on Peter's behalf, he then goes on to give a brief recapitulation, a recap of the letter. don't know how you would sum up, uh, sum up this letter, but we see Peter's recap very briefly as he continues in verse 12. Uh, he goes on to say, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. How did he recap this letter? How did he summarise what his intention had been in writing it? Well, he said he'd been doing two things in the course of the letter. Firstly, he said he'd been exhorting, or according to the NIV, encouraging. Uh, Secondly, he said he'd been declaring, or according to the NIV, testifying. So let's think about those two aspects in turn. The first aspect is exhorting or encouraging. Um, As we've worked our way through the letter, it's been very evident, hasn't it, that Peter was addressing suffering believers and he was writing to encourage them. When you hear that word encouraging, uh, in the first instance, you probably tend to understand it in terms of attempting to cheer someone up, you know, lift their spirits. Um, you say things like chin up or keep going. Um, you, know, you can perhaps picture uh, a long distance race and, and the crowd in, encouraging the runners by, by cheering them on. Uh, and the runners are encouraged just by knowing that people are there and rooting for them. And you can well see that Peter might have been trying to do that sort of thing as he wrote to these uh, believers who were suffering and perhaps finding it hard to keep going. But Peter was doing much more than just assuring them that he was rooting for them. Uh, The ESV is quite right in in translating the Greek word as exhorting. That doesn't just uh, speak of general encouragement. It, It rather speaks of encouraging them to do things. There's a, an urgency about it. It's prompting and urging and motivating them to act in a particular way. Uh, and we've seen that throughout the whole of the letter, haven't we? You remember all of those imperatives that we've had time and time again uh, as Peter's written the letter. He was urging them to live the Christian life. Uh, the way to stand and Uh, contend in the face of of suffering and opposition is to be committed to to living uh, in in a way that is consistent with the gospel. Second aspect that Peter highlights is declaring uh, or testifying. Um, And the Greek word that's been translated as declaring or testifying is only found in this one occasion uh, in the, the New Testament. And it really means attesting or asserting is much stronger than merely saying. Um, in contrast with exhorting, 
which is, is give, the giving, if you like, of moral commands and calling for appropriate uh, behaviour, declaring is the assertion of, of factual doctrinal truths. They provide the basis or the foundation for our actions and behaviour. If what we do doesn't flow from gospel truths that, that we believe, then our good actions and our, our behaviour are nothing more than a, an empty moralism. Peter included these two aspects in his letter because his, his readers needed both exhortation and declaration. And we're no different. We also need both exhortation and declaration. We, we constantly need to be encouraged to, to actually live the Christian life and we need to constantly have the truth of God's word presented to us. The fact is that both aspects go hand in hand. Um, you know, there are some Christians who say, well, I don't like doctrine. It's, it's dull and boring. You know, I'm a simple, practical person. Just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll do my best to get on with it. And then you get others who, who so love doctrine and are so fascinated by it and absorbed by it but they never actually do anything. And you come across those two extremes, don't you? You, you, you see those sorts of people. Um, you know, with that type of person, it's all head knowledge, but it doesn't actually affect their, their lives. And the point uh, of the truth that's declared is that it should be worked out in a practical way in our lives. We see that pattern displayed in many of Paul's letters, don't we? Invariably. The, the first section is doctrinal. He's presenting solid theology. And then the second section consists of exhortations to, to practical Christian living. And the distinction between the two is very clear to see, but they're not separate from one another. They, they, they go hand in hand. One leads to the other. So, for example, Romans is probably the clearest example. First 11 chapters are given over to the declaration of great foundational doctrinal truths. He is declaring these great theological truths. But then chapter 12 begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the rest of, of the letter then continues with, with exhortations to Christian living. And those exhortations don't just come out of the blue. That They're not given in a, a vacuum. You know, he's not saying, well, that's enough doctrine for now. We're, we'll, have a, we'll have a break and do some practical stuff. No, it's, I appeal to you, therefore... The appeal is given in the context of and on the basis of the preceding doctrinal teaching. And just like Paul, it's perhaps not as clear-cut with Peter, but the principle's the same. Peter's exhortations went hand-in-hand hand with his declaration of the truth. Next thing we see in his recap of the letter is what he declared. He said he was declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, that's a puzzling phrase in some ways because of that word this. He says that in his brief letter, he's declaring that this is the true grace of God. 
but he doesn't actually say what he means by this. Um, he certainly mentioned the grace of God on many occasions in the letter, but, but what does this refer to? Some of the commentators suggest that he means the letter itself, um, but that doesn't seem likely to me. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? It would mean that he was saying, I've written this letter to declare that this letter is the true grace of God. Well, that, that just doesn't work at all. Uh, others suggest that this refers to suffering. Uh, and obviously, suffering has been a very prominent theme in the letter. It's true that God uses suffering for his purposes and that they could know God's grace in their suffering. But it doesn't seem likely that Paul was saying that suffering itself is the true grace of God. Best to look to the immediate context to find out what this refers to. He had just said in, in verse 11, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He's speaking there of the, the God of all grace, and what he's graciously done is call his people to his eternal glory. We don't deserve to enter his eternal glory. Quite the opposite. We deserve banishment. We deserve punishment. Being called to his eternal glory is by his grace. And how has he done that? How is a holy God able to call sinners like us to his eternal glory? Well, Peter said that it's in Christ. Do you see that? The true grace of God is in Christ. God's grace to us consists of his giving love that we don't deserve in saving us from sin and death and calling us to his glory and he's done that by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a sacrifice so that the, the, the demands of God's perfect justice and the desires of his perfect mercy can both be fully satisfied. See, apart from Christ... God cannot be gracious to us. His grace is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that Peter speaks of the true grace of God suggests that there could be a false grace of God, doesn't it? Paul speaks of that in Jude uh, 4, uh, where he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this false, perverted grace of God is such that it denies Jesus Christ as only master and Lord. Anything that purports to be the grace of God that's not in Christ is not the grace of God. The grace of God is in Christ. So Peter's recapped his letter by saying that he declared the true grace of God in Christ to his readers on the basis of the grace that he declared. He'd exhorted them to, to live as those who have been saved by the God of all grace. Well, having given that brief recap, uh, Peter goes on to give... One final exhortation. He says, stand firm in it. He's exhorting them to stand firm. And in many ways that sums up the main 
message of the whole letter, doesn't it? He's exhorted them to stand firm in the face of opposition. He's exhorted them to stand firm in the face of suffering. He's exhorted them to stand firm against the devil. Now, there are plenty of of such exhortations to stand firm throughout the whole of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, we read, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I look at Philippians 4.1, where Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by a spoken word or by our letter. Time and time again, for the whole New Testament, we have all of these exhortations to stand firm. Why are there so many exhortations to stand firm? Well, surely it tells us that we are under attack. It tells us that there are forces directed against us that that want to blow us over and, and drag us down. It can be summed up, really, can't it, as the world and the flesh and the devil. These are all powers that are arrayed against us, and we need to stand firm against them we need to stand firm against the powers of this uh this godless world as it as it pressurizes to conform to its values we need to stand firm against our our natural sinful inclinations which make us stray from the lord and his ways We, we sang earlier didn't we prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love we all know something of that don't we but we need to stand against it and we're also to stand against the devices of the evil one whether it be his his subtle insinuations or or his fearsome roaring that that we were thinking about uh, last time well how are we to stand how are we to stand against these powerful foes these powerful forces I think it's about a year ago uh, that Alistair Cook retired from Test Match Cricket. Uh, Much was said about what a great player he'd been, and many made the comments that he wasn't the most naturally talented of batsmen, but he was able to stand against the world's best bowlers because he had great mental toughness and immense willpower, and a huge stubborn streak. Well, is that what we need uh, in order to stand? Is, is that the sort of thing we need to be doing to stand firm? Are we to trust in our own strength? Are we to grit our teeth and stubbornly exercise supreme willpower? Well, Peter doesn't say stand in your own strength at all. Rather, he says stand firm in it and by it he means the grace of God in Christ that he had declared notice he didn't say stand firm for it um, there are times when we're called to stand firm 
for the truth, aren't they? You think of Martin Luther's famous declaration, here I stand, I can do no other. But that's standing firm for it, isn't it? Standing firm for the truth. But that isn't Peter's emphasis here. He isn't saying, take a firm stand for the doctrine of the grace of God. Neither did Peter say, stand firm on it. Now, clearly the doctrine of the grace of God is foundational to to Christian belief and practice. Uh, In that sense, we are to stand firm on it. But again, that isn't Peter's emphasis here. Rather, he says, stand firm in it. Paul says something very similar in Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, the idea isn't simply of assenting to the idea of the grace of God or believing in the grace of God, but of having received it and experienced it in Christ. You see, Paul speaks of having obtained access into this grace. How? Well, it's by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And having entered into this grace through him, we are to stand firm in it. We stand firm by being surrounded by the grace of God or if you're being immersed in the grace of God. Our hope is to be in the grace of God. Our trust is to be in it. Our confidence is to be in it. Uh, As we saw previously, the true grace of God is in Christ. So stand firm. Uh, so, So to stand firm in God's grace means to have our hope and our trust and our confidence in him alone. Next we see the salutations. Um, Peter goes on there in verse 13 to say she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does Mark my son so he was passing on greetings from those that he was with at the time of writing firstly we see that there are greetings from she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. That's a strange-sounding description, isn't it? But it almost certainly means the church at Rome. Um, Referring to a local church as she who is likewise chosen is is similar to to what we find in 2 John uh, chapter 1, where he says the elder, uh, referring to himself, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And from the context, it's very clear that when he says the elect lady, he's talking about a local church. So Peter says that this local church is at Babylon. It seems unlikely that that's to be taken literally uh, as being Babylon in Mesopotamia that was once a world power in Old Testament times. There's nothing to suggest that Peter had ever been there. And by his day, Babylon was a a ghost town. It uh, It was in ruins. Uh, But in the New Testament, we find that Rome is often referred to as Babylon. Uh, And Peter was almost certainly writing his letter from Rome. Of course, designating Rome uh, as Babylon is is loaded with 
symbolic meaning, isn't it? Besides having once been a, the dominant world power, just as Rome was at this time, uh, Babylon was notorious for its sinfulness, just as Rome was. It had always represented opposition to God and the persecution of God's people. And, of course, it was the place of exile. I think that's this morning. Uh, we were thinking about exile there, weren't we? So Peter was saying that he was writing from the, the powerful, godless city of Rome that persecuted believers. And notice that he said that the church there was likewise chosen. In other words, there were believers in God in Rome who were chosen by God in the same way as the believers uh, in the churches that Peter was writing to in Asia Minor had been chosen. Remember, Peter began uh, began this letter, if you cast your minds back nine years. Uh, <laughs> remember, he, 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 began, uh, he began the letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He spoke of them, the very people he was writing to, he spoke of them as being elect. That is, they were chosen by God, just as the believers in Rome were. And he spoke of them as being exiles. They were sojourners, they were strangers in alien, hostile territory just as the believers in Rome were. And that would have been an encouragement to Peter's readers, wouldn't it? Um, it would have been an encouragement to them, uh, th those he was writing to and sending greetings to, from a church that was suffering in the same way as they were, that they were not alone in suffering for the sake of Christ, that they would also be encouraged to know that even in, in the very centre of the Roman Empire in all its godlessness and wicked ways, God had his people there who were likewise chosen. And we too can take heart from the assurance, can't we, that God has his chosen people everywhere. Nowhere it is so desperately God-forsaken that there are no believers, no witness to Christ. You remember that time when, when Paul was in, in Macedonia preaching the gospel and he was very frustrated and very disappointed because he was confronted by such strong opposition and, and he was on the verge of, of giving up. But, but God spoke to him in Acts uh, 18, 9-11 and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision Do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you, attack you to harm you for, and this is why it was, I have many in this city who are my people. Couldn't see them yet. It wasn't evident yet. But God had his chosen people who would hear, would receive Christ, would become believers. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So even in the midst of such hostility, God has his chosen people. Well, having said that she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, he then goes on to say, and so does Mark, my son. 
Um, almost certainly that refers to John Mark. We know from Acts 12 that the house of his mother Mary was used as a meeting place by the church in Jerusalem. So Peter no doubt would have known him from there. Uh, then John Mark set off with Paul on his first missionary journey. But he returned to Jerusalem from, from Perga. Um, we know that uh, he accompanied Barnabas to Cyprus. And we don't really know what he did after that. But he was present with Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. It seems that he was also present with Peter while he was there in Rome. Uh, so Peter sent his greetings no evidence that Mark ever went to the churches in, in Asia Minor that Peter, that Peter was writing to, but the, the fact that Peter mentioned him by name, it suggests that Peter's readers would have known of him. Um, interesting, isn't it? They probably had never met him, but in some way, word got round that there, there must have been communication amongst the believers in lots of different areas and lots of different locations. Peter refers to him as my son. Um, that could simply denote that he was a, a younger co-worker or, or possibly that he was actually converted through Peter's ministry. We don't know, but whatever. Peter sent on his greetings to the believers uh, throughout Asia Minor as well. And next we have an instruction there in verse 14. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. They had received greetings from brothers and sisters in Christ who were strangers to them. Brothers and sisters in Christ who were all the way over there in Rome. People they didn't know, people they'd never met, people who were separated by geography. Uh, and no doubt they were pleased and touched to receive those greetings. It would have come as a great encouragement to them. But you see, we also need to encourage one another. So Peter felt the need to instruct them to greet one another. It's all too easy, isn't it, to take for granted the brothers and sisters that we see on a regular basis. You know, how we how we ought to, to uh, appreciate one another. How we ought to appreciate the, the the fellowship that we have together in Christ. You know, we we can hear news from a missionary in wherever, and we get really excited about it, and rightly so. But we must make sure that we likewise uh, greet one another. You know, the brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are separated by geography uh, need to, you know, they have to greet one another by letter. But Peter instructs those who are met together to greet one another with the kiss of love. I don't think that's necessarily to be taken as a, a command to literally kiss one another whenever we meet. could all get very sloppy and messy, couldn't it? But notice that Peter describes it as the kiss of love. And the word that's been translated there as love is agape. So, so it's speaking of that, that special, selfless Christian love. The point is that we are being encouraged to greet one another with, with a, a warm and genuine expression of Christian love. How that's done in practice will vary from culture to culture. 
Could be a kiss. Could be a hug. Could be a a handshake. Uh, If you're an Eskimo, it could be rubbing noses. But the, the, the mechanics of it really doesn't matter so much. Uh, the point is that however you do it, it's not to be a mere formality. It's not to be a cold formality, but a genuine expression uh, of the love that's intended to be mutually encouraging and uplifting. It doesn't matter how you do it, does it? You know, a, a kiss can be very insincere, just as cold as a handshake or, or whatever. It's not the mechanics that matters. It's, it's the intention and the love behind it that, that counts. Finally, and this really is finally, <laughs> we have a, a brief benediction as Peter continues in verse 14. He says, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Right at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, he said, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So from the outset, his desire for these suffering believers had been peace. And he now closes the letter by praying for peace. Now notice he doesn't pray for peace for them. He's not praying for an end to their suffering. Uh, and consequently a more peaceful life. No, he prays peace to all of you. It's very similar to, to the Jewish word shalom, isn't it? And that speaks of a, a, a an inner peace and contentedness that, that, that relationships among ourselves and our relationship with God are healthy. He prays for that to be to all of you who are in Christ. So he's praying that the body as a whole would know that peace uh, and it comes by virtue of their being in Christ. It's because we have that that underlying peace through our relationship with Christ that we can stand firm in the grace of God against the world, against the flesh and against the devil. May God help us to do just that. Amen.